0: join me in disgraceland available right now wherever you get your podcasts rock and roll a
1: lot of drummers end up being producers and there's something Ooh. about being a drummer i think when you're sort of you're kind of driving the ship and you're you're like thinking holistically about how everything's fitting in and you're hearing every little thing and you're seeing every little thing and also being in a band um, if you're not just wasted all the time, you learn how to like talk to the crew. You learn how to deal with the press. You learn how to deal with a hotel, or like all the different things.
2: Hi, this is Lowell Tolhurst,
3: co-founder of The Cure. And this is Budgie, co-founder of The Creatures, drummer with The Slits, and Susie and the Banshees. Welcome to Curious
2: Creatures. Life After Punk You may think you know the territory But we, we drew the map
3: Welcome to Curious Creatures In this episode we continue our, our talk with Kate Schellenbach. Uh, last week, as you remember, it was uh, life in New York City And this week we moved to the opposite coast you're in, Calif- you're in California now, okay.
1: Yeah, I, I moved to L.A. around uh, 2003, officially. Um, okay. So I've been here for a long time at this point. That's like I never thought I would have moved into California. I was such a new, diehard New Yorker, as was my mom and everybody else in my family, and right. generations and generations of New Yorkers. So there was a real hatred of L.A.,
3: because that's a that's a place you really you you really can't walk around LA. I didn't, right. no, I didn't know
1: how to drive when I moved here. I would take the bus, and I had to get my driver's license at an embarrassing age. In the uh, um,
2: don't worry, I did the same thing. You know, I yeah. grew up living in, in London and being driven around and stuff, and that. And I I didn't get my license till I moved out to California. I'm, yeah. I moved out in '94, I guess. So, yeah, and I thought I would never live in Los Angeles, but you know, I love it here. Really, you know, it's yeah. uh, it's been it's been really a revelation to me to to live here. And I felt a, a, a lot of love and a, and a lot of creativity. So it's been good. Good,
1: yeah. I like it here. Yeah, I've have a different life here and different career and and right. um, a lot of friends from from new york moved out here and uh yeah it feels it feels like home
3: what what brought you to what 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 turned it for you to get to la
1: well i fell in love with somebody i started dating somebody out here in in los angeles and that would do it yeah and my sister had actually moved to la a few years prior and i always enjoyed uh visiting her in la and i i think new york kind of ran its course for me like i it was great to grow up there. It was great to, you know, get into music and all that kind of thing. I lived in a loft um, that I was able to play drums in. I could make a racket. We rehearsed there. and recorded there. Um, but then things just started to change. And I think 9/11 was a little bit of a, you know, scare. Obviously, a very scary time for New York. But um, right, right. I just I liked LA. I'd come in February. It would be 75. I'd come in, you know. Yeah. Uh, October it'd be 75. I just I got. Yeah. New York is just hard. It's just great when you're young, but it's it's hard. It's like the right. tough living. It's always you're always kind of like bombarded by everything. So yeah, I fell in love and I I started coming out here more and more. My band Luscious Jackson had broken up in uh, 2000. And I was kind of figure out what what I was going to do next. Um, is it going to be more music? Is it going to be a different career? That sort of thing. And uh, it ended up being a different career. I ended up working started working in television obviously LA is the place for that. And uh, that's been my career in the last uh, bunch of years. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, I never would have thought, never never would have thought at growing up that I would end up in LA. We always, LA was always the butt of the joke. And, uh, um, but you know, it's not like, did you guys run into each other in LA just like randomly? Or did you?
2: No, I, I knew-
1: Cause that's, that's the thing that I miss about living in New yeah. York. You just run into people constantly la that's why i
2: left london that's why i left london i didn't want to i didn't want to run into anybody <laughs> I be, no you know i was like no forget that i, I want to be somewhere i don't know me you know? lol
3: you came like to maybe one sound yeah. check in all those years that i could have potentially run into you yes because you were living in la yeah
2: i come down to see you at uh i came to see you at the at the wilton you you and the, you know the banshees were playing at the wilton and i came and saw you and i i hung out and I. I had just learned to drive, right? So I was very happy. Right. But I put my car in one of these lots next to the Wilton. <laughs> yeah. and I was talking to you for so long at, at, the, at, the, at the, you know, backstage, and then we went to this club. My car got locked into this lot, and I'm like, "Oh shit! I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to get a taxi home because there's no, yeah, you know, I come back and get this tomorrow morning." So right. I always remember that. Yeah. To me, the more I live in LA, it reminds me of London because it's like it's 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 a you know it's a small town masquerading as a big city, I think, you know, there's, it's like, depending where you live, you know, Mm. there's lots of little areas where you can, you can know people, you can get things going, you know, it's like, uh, like, you know, Silver Lake and then like on the West side, there's lots of little, but it's like, it's all in this huge, great conglomerate, you know? So, um, I don't know. I'm, I'm comfortable here now. And I, I like yourself. I never thought that I would be, you know, but, uh, it's amazing what life brings to you.
1: you know? Yeah, you just have to be open, I guess, yes. and willing um, to take those risks.
3: Yes. I like I like the way you can choose to wear big boots and a big coat because there's no real need to. I always thought that was funny. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. So people, yeah. Those first gigs we did at the Whiskey, I think we were doing two shows and a day at the whiskey a Go Go, and right. and there were people turn up in like like soft top, open top cars and saying, hey, do you want to come down to the beach house? And we're going, what's that? <laughs> you know, because <laughs> st- we stood outside the whiskey with the rider because it had fresh fruit on it. You know, we're going like, no, no, we're taking this back to our hotel, which was the Tropicana yeah. down the road, you know. And, we, of oh, course, wow. we were walking, you know, and they were smoking spliff. And we're going like, what's that? <laughs> it's like... We were so young and green. It was just ridiculous. We had no idea that some of the kids had like bin liners on with a safety pin in them. And we're going to like, right. ooh, it's a bit they, ooh. You know, they've obviously read the Daily Mirror. <laughs> yeah, It was all Well, that, you just
1: made me, that just made me think of, I don't know if you've ever seen the Portlandia episode where they have the goths on the beach.
3: Where it's yes. like a bunch
1: of goths <laughs> trying to figure right. like, out out like sunbathing, which is pretty sterile. Yeah. But yeah, I just imagine LA, that scene.
2: I remember when I first got here, people would tell me, "Oh, you know, it's it's going to be autumn soon," and I could never discern what the change in weather was. You know, you have to you have to live here about ten years before you realize there are actual seasons. Yeah. you know, and think, you know, it's a little chillier in the morning. Mm. Just got to put the heater on, and uh, you know, but it, it's the weather. It has to be the weather, and also, you know, I uh, I like the fact that topographically, it's it's very. It, Interesting, You know, you can stand up yeah. on top of a small hill and see the whole of the city, you know, which you can't do in New York for sure. And you can't do it in London very much, you know. So I like that. It gives a sense of uh, openness. Uh,
1: well, I remember studying the Thomas Guide right. and being really into that and like just looking at all because New York City, for the most part, it's it's a grid, you know, except for the village is a little bit crazy. But uh, yeah, I remember really getting into this, yeah, the topography of L.A., and, uh, you know, yes, here's, here's this part of this town that you're up on a, on a mountain mm. and uh, that's a whole neighborhood or, or you know, yeah. beach towns or, you know, all that stuff. But I I still have like a, a laminated Thomas Guide somewhere um, <laughs> that was for truck drivers, like the big, the, each yeah, page right. right if, you, yeah. if, if you had a Thomas Guide, there was like those one or two pages that you'd always use and they'd start to disintegrate <laughs> and they'd yeah. rip or like rub off on the street. Exactly. you're like,
3: First exit on the one hundred and one. So is that like the A to Z of London? Yeah, but it's but it's a lot bigger. It's the same thing because it's like you only used used like four pages of it. You used like there's not yeah. this whole book that went out to Wilsdon and South London, right. but you only ever bothered yeah. with like the West End
1: right yeah. is that the one that the cab drivers all have to memorize or something uh, yes they to have to do,
3: do the knowledge and, and- the knowledge yeah. you have to have the
2: knowledge or do everything but you know the, th- the trouble with the thomas guide was because it was so big you couldn't really put it on your lap you had to put it on the passenger seat next to you so you'd be driving along trying to to look at the passenger seat and see where you were going you know and then you have to avoid somebody in front of you it was pretty hectic driving
1: It also cut off at a certain spot so if you happen to be going to like ventura or or outside of la county yeah. for some reason it, you're out of luck <laughs> shit out of luck
2: yeah good luck well, that's okay because there's, there's nothing outside of ventura anyway i, I shouldn't say that <laughs> i get a lot of letters for that no it's very nice <laughs> out there
3: Well, I was just thinking the ending of one chapter in your life, what did you have a kind of, uh, if you like, an overview, like a philosophy? What, what, what was your guiding thing through that ch- transition, I suppose?
1: Like transition from music to another career? I think, yeah. um, well, you know, I'm sure you've all experienced uh, the music business is so, so hard, mm. and it's so hard to make a living um if you don't achieve a certain amount of success um, and we luscious jackson just wasn't really i mean we had like a top 40 hit but it wasn't enough to like launch us into a, a realm where we could make it really make a living um, and and at the time so luscious jackson came up in the 90s and it was a kind of a friendly time for female voices on the radio that sort of thing but then there was like a change that happened where uh, sort of post Lilith Fair, where there weren't playing a lot of women on the radio anymore. So we kind of like, we had released an album and things, we were just kind of spinning our wheels. We couldn't, it wasn't getting, you know, whatever. We weren't, we weren't going up. We were just sort of plateauing. And um, some of the girls in the band wanted to kind of get off the road, start, you know, working on relationships and having families and just having a different kind of life. Mm-hmm. And then after that, um, I had to decide, yes, am I going to, am I, you know, your whole identity is wrapped up so heavily in a band and, you know, um, Kate from Luscious Jackson or Kate from Beastie Boys or whatever, you you know, it's, you sort of have to come to terms of not being that anymore or, or Mm. you're that. And then what else are you? So it took a few years. Um, It took, I started to took some classes. I was like, well, I've always been interested in typography. Let me take a typography class and stuff like that. I learned how to do Photoshop, just to try to like stretch out the savings and and figure things out. I did, um, oh, what was that called? The Artist's Way, where you write like morning papers, all this stuff. I did all those things. I did all the things. Yes. Yes. I did all the things.
3: Morning pages, three morning pages. I have have mine here. Lol gave me one for (laughs) my last (laughs) Christmas, I think.
1: Yeah, so it's just sort of like honing in on what are my interests? I've always been I've always liked lights. Is there somebody I could learn how to do lights? So like for, in the, like lighting at a show yeah. or that sort of thing. Like right. just trying to figure out like what what interests me outside of music. And I think I I also knew that I didn't really want to tour, um, unless it was like touring with a band that was, you know, REM or somebody that was like everybody had their own bus and everybody had their own whatever. You know, I just couldn't live that right. lifestyle anymore. It was just too destructive and too hard. Um, so it just, yeah, it took a couple years and then I I fell in love with someone out in LA I moved out here. I started coming out here a lot and then, um, I met, uh, so one of the people that I knew just a little bit socially was Ellen DeGeneres, who, uh, was sort of in the scene that in LA that I was connected to. And I heard that she was starting a talk show and, um, and then I was like, oh, that could be interesting. I, I love comedy. I've always loved comedy. Yeah. I love her as a comedian. I love her point of view, right. like her, her the style of comedy, that sort of thing. Maybe yeah. this is some, maybe maybe working on a TV show, that could be something, you know, it just right. see what that's like. So right. I got, I was able to get a meeting with people running that show um, and they were very great. They had a, they had a lunch. I had an L.A. lunch. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, you hear about these things, right? I love L.A. lunches. Yeah. And uh I had uh, just learned how to drive, and I was very nervous about it. But I wasn't driving on the highways, so they wanted to meet at a place that I was, you know, was a little bit ways, 20 minutes away from my house. Um, but I had, so I did a practice the day before. I practiced, drove to this spot <laughs> to make sure I could get there without being on the highway. Right. And also, I always, I still have parking uh, anxiety, which I think is a New York thing, where you're always like worried about parking. Right. So I still have to suss out what's the parking situation. So anyway. No. Meet up with these guys, have lunch, and um, they talked to me for a really long time, and um, they they like my point of view, they like, but they were, whatever, they gave me a chance to to uh, do an assignment and write in Ellen's voice and this kind of thing, and I was able, and some, they said it was great, so they hired me, and I started working as a researcher at the Ellen DeGeneres show when she launched her mm-hmm. show in 2000, 2006, um, and there's something about being, I wanna know if it's a drummer thing, but I've talked about this, other, other drummers, a lot of drummers end up being producers and there's something mm. about being a drummer. I think when you're sort of, you're kind of driving the ship and you're you're like thinking holistically about how everything's fitting in and you're hearing every little thing and you're seeing every little thing and also being in a band. Um, if you're not just wasted all the time and you learn how to like talk to the crew, you learn how to deal with the press, you learn how to deal with a hotel or like all the different things that um, yeah. so, so being in a band and, paying attention and doing all these things. So it's like a real conducive uh, way to become a producer. So now what I do now is I'm a producer on talk shows. So um, I think also being in bands and being somebody who's been interviewed a bunch. And and uh, so basically what I do is produce interviews. So let's say, mm. uh, but you're you're, lull, you're you're booked on our show. I, so I work on, right now I work with James Gordon. He is a, a talk show for the latest yes, show. Yes, we
2: know James, yeah.
1: Um, so if you're booked on the show, I, would, I am assigned to you, and then I produce our, the chat that you and James would do. And there's something about all the background that I've done that, that makes me a good producer. I don't know, know what it is, but I do think there's something about drummers and producers, because I've met a lot of producers who, who are drummers or were drummers, or that kind of thing. Yes. And I think that's true also for as music producers as well, not just television producers or film producers. There's just some, hmm. something about the drumming mentality that lends itself. Which,
3: which, which aspect? I wonder, which is the dominant aspect of being a drummer? You know, keeping the head the right way up so the saliva
1: doesn't <laughs> I'm
3: in Berlin. Um, when I got here, the uh, music college opened. Yeah. And I applied for this position. And I ended up, I been head of the drum department and then Head of the whole live performance department, and I'm thinking, I'm the least qualified here. I've got to be. Everybody else has got academic qualifications. Mm-hmm. The only thing I have is experience of something. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm a drummer, you know. So yeah. Does it count? It must count. It must count somewhere yeah. that we have. I think it counts for a lot. This is that thing of all seeing, all listening, all watching, watching everybody's feet out front yeah yeah Mm. yeah well yeah you have
2: a a point really because i i I think you know obviously there's you know there's the stereotypical drummer you know as like the the guy on the muppets you know and oh they're all a little mad you know and crazy and that and sure there's some aspects of that that i can identify with but generally there's a much more you know because drumming is fairly um abstract mathematically i think you know our brains naturally fit that that kind of pattern where we can hold a lot of things together like that and you know like this this whole show is just run by drummers you know it's like it's a whole yeah yeah drummers cooperative um perhaps we're a bit more pragmatic about things you know and less uh less head in the clouds but you know who knows i think uh as long as we're doing something we enjoy right
1: we're tricking people. They like the, the lead singer or the guitars, whatever. They think they're in control of everything, but really the drummers are controlling everything, and we're just yeah. doing it in a very tricky way, very quiet. It's like it's
2: like the goalkeeper
3: in 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 you know in a soccer uh, team. The goalies always end up. They want to win the match so badly that they end up leaving the goal line and running down the pitch. He said, "Come on, you guys, I can do it. <laughs> we'll, we'll, I'll do it yeah. on my own." Yeah. And uh, I always yeah. knew that you know I. I should leave I, as much as I wanted to be out front with the guitar and maybe some points. Mm. Um, I, that was my little fantasy, you know, be on the stage commanding the show. But you know, you did that quite well. If I think about it for like,
2: like the creatures, I mean, you were definitely, you know, you were running that whole show. <laughs> it, yeah. uh, it, it,
3: it, did me in. Uh, I I think given the opportunity to run the whole thing, I, I, yeah. d- I did and paid the price. It, I,
1: well, I, I think there's also going back to when I saw that first band that had a female drummer and a female bassist. And I was like, either of those things seem good to me, but I'd rather be sitting down <laughs> and, uh, <those laughs> drums were more appealing. I always like to get a good seat. And, um, but also, and I'm not like a front person. I think being like a producer on a talk show, I'm I'm, I'm behind the scenes. I'm like to, telling everybody what to say and what to do and the comedy right. and whatever. I'm choosing all those things. I'm controlling yes. it all, but I'm, yes. you know, I'm backstage with my clipboard and, and, uh, yeah. you know, and I get to like meet and talk to all these incredible people and like really, right. um, you know, try to just make everybody fall in love, whoever it is I'm producing. So, oh. um, and James Gordon's a love and a, and he's great. And he's just yeah. a great guy and it's been a pleasure. So I've worked with a lot, a lot of comedians and he's, right. uh, it's, it's it's a it's a super fun job
3: he seems everybody everybody and maybe that's to do with the whole team seems so relaxed uh, i i came, <laughs> only came across him recently i don't live there of course so i'm yeah. thinking hang on he's got an english accent he's got the best english accent and he and he sings and he's and he does everything mm-hmm. really well um, yeah,
1: very talented
3: very yeah uh, so okay i have to ask you how are we doing
1: how- <laughs> in life in the big picture
3: how are we doing how are we- oh how are you guys oh, doing oh as oh, interviewers no. you-
1: yeah. i thought you meant like, like in a really large uh, well we can go we can <laughs> go there as well yeah. we, we- no 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 gonna,
3: overall picture,
2: you, yeah. guys are
1: doing, you guys are doing fantastically wonderfully wonderful wow there's like a it's a fine line between uh being too on the nose and just being free and easy like you find you found like the sweet spot of uh
3: you I know, think just you, letting
1: things flow asking follow-ups and uh yeah you're, you're doing great oh
3: you, you, you're, you're <laughs> too kind you're too kind and i know you you've made it so sweet for us You you've made this yeah. spot. yeah <laughs> um, That's great. It, it's lovely that you you you've um come to hold our hand through our first little <laughs> oh. well, uh, well, uh, you don't- uh, and also put the face t- again to the uh the cheeky little Thing that told me to switch the toms round and and I do oh. and 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 I'm gonna cherish this memory because uh, I't you, you don't think you're gonna meet twice in life that way
1: um, I learned to play drums by watching people and watching people you know on on stage or on TV that sort of thing and because of that I learned to play incorrectly or I'm a right-handed player but I lead with my left hand ah, so well. then I but and on, on, like I guess Ringo maybe is the same. Yeah. But that gives me a lot of weird independence with my left hand, so I can play that Arabian Nights thing. <laughs> easily. Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, so you know. That's no, I, lo- that.
3: I loved it. You taught me something. That's what's great. We always, if we're still open well, to learning, you know.
1: See, that's the the dream come true for. I, I can't even believe I had enough nerve at that age to even say anything to you.
3: <laughs> I
2: was right. <laughs> well, I'm glad you did. I'm glad yeah. you did. Otherwise, we wouldn't have met now. You not think <laughs> about that. There you go. <laughs> Now it's Curious Question time again. And this week, we're going to answer the third part of Damien B's really long question. It's for both of us. And it says... Now's our
3: big chance. It's our big, big chance.
2: chance. Drums in post-punk were an overlooked aesthetic, except... <laughs> I'm glad he said except. Except for The Cure and The Banshees and Joy Division. Many punk, etc. drummers having the usual standard set up. Was it a conscious decision on both your parts to do original things with the drums, uh, i.e. their configuration? I could go on all day, says Damien B. Well, yes, of course it was a conscious decision. We knew exactly what we were doing, and we did it nonetheless.
3: Well, I think we, we've already... Well, I, I was certainly venturing into that area. <laughs> I, I, um, it's it's kind of like where you're... Um, who you know, wh- who you were listening to or what you were listening to or what, you know, what, like, sailed your boat <laughs> in, in, in music. It, uh, my first memories of drums were somewhere between, I like, and I've said it so many times, but it was a film called Zulu. With Michael Caine.
2: I remember that, yes. yes, yeah,
3: And they're all beautifully attired in their British red regalia. right? And the Zulu appeared at a big battle scene at the end. And they all appeared, and I could have made this up. I've checked. There are photographs. I think I'm getting closer to the truth. Okay. But they're up on the horizon. And it's, it's, it's so obvious that these poor guys, these English officers are grossly outnumbered. The key to it is the Zulu warriors had shields and a spear, and they were wrapping the spear against the shield. And it was like this enormous kind of
0: ram sound.
3: Right, A hundred spears in a hundred shields. And that was the sound I thought, that's what drums should sound like.
2: So you were into the, the story that your drums were going to tell as much as anything
3: else. Isn't that strange? It's a very... I didn't realize that drums... Of course, they were a communication thing. Right. But what years in the future, and, and now in the history, but I, I played with an old friend, uh, Ben Watkins, Jr. Reactor, and he had two two drummers from... South Africa. Mabee he sadly right. passed away just a few a few weeks ago, maybe yeah. a month month ago. Mabee and I we I put this thing together, a one-off concert and invited Mabi, And mm. he was a conga player and some African drums. Right. And I'd never seen him do this before, but it was a free kind of free thinking kind of concert. We had a, a rough plan. But it was gonna give everybody a moment to do their thing. Right. Mabee started to tell a story with the drums. We were in Hong Kong, mm. so the, the vast majority of the audience were Chinese. Right. Or at least their first language was, what. it wasn't a story we could tell. Right, yes. But Mabee was making noises, and he was having a conversation. The drums were one character, and I didn't realize how obvious it was. Mm. I, you know, what a... Storytelling instrument they are.
2: Well, I think you know from the very beginning of time they were probably the first instrument the man had, and they were used for that to message, you know, people. And so, I, th- I think in answer to Damien's question, I feel the three bands that you mentioned we were probably interested because punk had set us free and said, "Hey, you don't need to do things the old way. You can do them any way you want." Hmm. And it set us all on this path of experimentation and exploration. And so we were liable from the beginning to do things differently, no matter what, because that's what we thought we could do. And, you know, some of the experiments in that worked and some of them didn't, but it it made our aesthetic and it made our direction very um, personal. And, mm. and and so, you know, if it's personal to you, then you're going to do it. We were never going to be uh, what they call over here, plain vanilla. We were never going to be, you know, a run-of-the-mill same kind of unit. And and we didn't try, oh, well, we're just going to be different and vastly different. It was just, it was inherent in our nature. I think that's the
3: nearest I can get to the explanation of that. We, we, we had no option, if I'm... I think you, like me, and probably Stephen Morris, right, um, would also, would be self-taught. Yes. Well, so we didn't have, like, drum corps. Like, when I came to America and met the drummers of uh, American bands, like Jane's mm. Addiction, um, Living Colour, um, they'd all done their time, if you like. They knew their rudiments. They knew their jazz skills. Uh, they knew their paradiddles and yeah. drag, drag drag, rolls. And yeah. I, I, I had no idea what this stuff was. I, yeah. all, all I knew was like Kodo or Zulu drumming or whatever <laughs> it might be. And, and and so there was no, we'd grown up on some rock music, you know, yeah. which was, and the the British drummers were swinging. I mean, we were talking about right. this the other day as yeah. well. Um, so even the heaviest drummers, like Black Sabbath or Deep Purple, mm. Bill Ward and Ian Pace were swing. They were yeah. swing drummers, big, right. big, big, big band. Big band, yes. Uh, yeah. And so swing was a big thing because <laughs> <laughs> right. it, it rhymes. Yeah. Um, but I didn't know how to play those things. I had no techniques uh, to make make them up.
2: Well, a technique came from a a belief and desire to do something, and that that's a very strong motivator in any kind of art form, you know. And so, we were not um, idiots, savants, or whatever you'd like to call the you know people, but we definitely came from uh, a different uh, aspect
3: of of approach. Yeah,
2: that was that
3: was it. It's like hearing. I agree, maybe you did too. Uh, grow up, uh, hearing a lot of reggae in Britain. Sure, yeah, because of the uh, the Jamaican population that, that was brought yeah. into Britain. Absolutely. Um, so I grew up with reggae chartbusters from the the Upsetters and right, yeah, the the Cimarans and yeah. Then you grew and, up, and I you grew up importantly with the One Drop. Yeah, there was that, and the sound and yes. the fills. Yes, the sound of the drums was like no other. They, they, the, the the drums were obviously dry, but there was all this reverb, right? Um, and yes, that the, the, the just the either the constant bass drum knocking out the one, two, three, four, or as you say, losing the one. Yeah, and that was and, revelation to me because you know, like I'd been listening to rock. And then, mm. you
2: know, I heard some reggae because, like you say, we were surrounded by it all the time. I can remember one of uh, Robert's brother in law's friend, Sandy, who's passed away now, would give me these tapes with like all this old reggae stuff on, you know, dub, all kinds of stuff. And he just, mm. he just give me mixtapes and I would listen to it. And I think, wow, it's like they're playing this thing shifted, just one set on, you know, it's, and so,
3: yeah, you, you get that, that becomes part of you as well. I don't think that be, America being much closer mm. didn't didn't hadn't 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 absorbed any of those things, right? Is as if it came straight from Jamaica to like London, Liverpool, Manchester, Birmingham. Yeah, it it, it was direct, and we were get, being fed that yeah. either directly or subconsciously because it infiltrated the British charts. David Ansel Collins. Oh, sure, um, yeah. Yeah, way before bob Marley, way right. way before right. um an uptown top ranking oh my well, god well that came yeah, yeah. it was just it, so the stuff came in and we we did absorb that so when we got the chance to play some 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 bands like our friends the specials yes right went straight into blue beat and scar yeah. others uh, like we that wasn't the music we were playing we we were not into that style but it felt it either a guitar part or a keyboard part would le- would take heavily from some part of sure that, yeah you know John. we are just what are we lol chameleons chameleons and and
2: products of our environment as well you know i mean you know there's not many places say in yeah uh, you know, i mean Bands came later from there that had some of this stuff in, but there's not many places in, in say, in Orange County here where you could walk around in the late 70s and just hear, you know, reggae coming out from a basement flat in Notting Hill Gate. You know, it's just, it's not the same, but we had that all the time, you know, so. Yeah.
3: Our friends down in Orange County, no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, big were, fans they, of. Um, yeah. They were big fans of the specials and bad yeah. manners and people like that. Yeah, yeah, you know. So, so they uh, they
2: imported it them to here. You know, so. Yeah, so.
3: But that's what it's all about, you know.
2: It's a cross. God,
3: God bless them. God bless them.
2: God bless them. Yes, cross fertilization. You know, and that's the way that uh, the cookie crumbles, as they say. <laughs> Curious Creatures is created and presented by. Paul Tolhurst and Budgie. Producer, Joe Wong. Producer and audio designer, Dan Didier. Executive producer, Mark Cates. Associate producer, Sophie Spear. Social media, Margie Taylor. art and logo design, Justin Thomas K. Music production, Jack Knife Lee. Curious Creatures is on the web, and you can access us at www curiouscreaturespodcast.com
3: I love saying www.curiouscreaturespodcast.com and you can reach us on Instagram Facebook (laughs) at Curious Creatures Official Twitter at Cure
2: Creatures To find more of the best music podcasts visit doubleelvis.com or follow at doubleelvis on Instagram and at doubleelvisfm on Twitter Curious Creatures is a production of LXB LLC 2021.